So these images have set the stage for us today to talk a little bit about racism. And the way I'd like to begin today is I want to think about for a moment what it means to act in good faith. You've heard that phrase before, acting in good faith, because sometimes it's used in contractual arrangements. So in other words, sometimes you might enter into a contract for some business transaction with somebody, and to enter into that contract in good faith means basically you're going to be fair, you're going to be honest, you're going to be reasonable, you're going to have the interest of the other party at your uh, core, uh, you're not going to act arbitrarily nor capriciously, and a key in our topic today is not acting with prejudice or disgust from, uh, 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 toward people of a different race or a different culture. So if we're going to apply what is often occurring in the business world, can't we also keep some of those same values when we are fighting for a good faith? I would suggest that if we are going to be the ambassadors of God in the world, then we're not just fighting a good fight, we're trying to fight for a good faith, one that is honorable, one that is respectful to other people. Well, we have said that one of the things that happens is this interconnection between nationalism, racism, homophobia, and then the violence that extends from that. So today, as we talk about this racism, we again want to emphasize that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So Paul in Ephesians 6.12 says it's not just on a personal level, sometimes it's very systemic as well. And so we talked last week about fighting nationalism, and this nationalism is trying to use religion and the history of our country as a way of trying to suppress the rights of other people. Now here's an image that should invoke or evoke some emotions in you. So two years ago, January the 6th, was the insurrection. And this is what it looked like on the floor of the Capitol building when those that wanted to enter into the hollowed halls of our government and overthrow an election because they didn't want the person that won to be in power. And so what we find is a lot of connections began to take place with who these people are, what their objectives are, what their motives are, and a summary of that is called white nationalism. White nationalism is the identification of one's own tribe to the exclusion or detriment of the interests of other people within that nation. And so white nationalism then ties into racism. And we see that one of the images there at the Capitol building is not just uh, a, an American flag. You also have this Confederate flag as well. Which is interesting, isn't it? That this is speaking volumes of what was trying to be accomplished on that day. So here's the deal. When white nationalism is connected to racism, this is usually what happens. There's approval of authoritarian tactics, 
distrust of religious minorities, condoning violence toward black Americans, believing racial inequality is due to the shortcoming of the minorities, hold anti-immigrant views, and fear refugees. And when you look at this, it's racist through and through. Think about this for a moment. Distrusting religious minorities, people of other faiths beyond Christianity, condoling violence towards specific people groups, believing that racial inequality is not the problem of white nationalism, but it's because of the shortcomings of the minorities themselves. Then it extends to anti-immigrant views and fearing refugees that are going to come in. So racism and nationalism seem to walk hand in hand together. And what we find is that when white Christian nationalism comes on the side of nationalism, then what happens is a lot of racism begins to creep in. And when we fight a good fight for a good faith to respect the equality of other people in our country, well, you're going to get pushback on that, obviously. So one of the problems is what our image is of Jesus. In art, Jesus is always portrayed as a white man. Now, this one is really bold, isn't it? Wrapped in an American flag. Straight, white, American Jesus. That's who we worship. You know, he has long flowing hair. Some pictures he has blue eyes. His skin is very light colored. And we all know that that is an inaccurate representation. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was Middle Eastern. Jesus was a Torah observing individual. He was an individual that changed what the outlook was of the religion that he grew up in, but nonetheless, he would have much darker skin. He probably wouldn't have that long flowing hair. He might have that rough look about him like a construction worker. That was his trade. So our images of Jesus seem to reinforce some of the things that we want to believe in an idealized world. So white Christian nationalism then will often try to exclude other people by the images, coming back to images, that are used. Well, here's another image. So this image blew up when, for a prolonged time, this white police officer had his knee on the neck of George Floyd. And you remember how the country responded, right? There was a lot of rioting and protest. And then white people said, I don't understand why they have to act like that. Because that's your viewpoint from where you're standing. It's not the viewpoint from where this group of people have heard over and over and over again of the violence and mistreatment of white police officers against their community. So when we think about all of this, what we need to do is remember the key word that George Floyd said for over numerous minutes, I can't breathe. 
I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Now, that is in a very real way at the heart of racism. Preventing other people from breathing. So take a look at this. When we think about how people have been treated over the years, we need to think about a pyramid of power. And I'm going to illustrate what this means in a moment. We who are white sit atop this pyramid, and we have options available to us. But other minorities are like in these boxes here that have to overcome walls to begin to move up the pyramid of privilege and power and also the type of uh, uh, life that they pursue. You know, the American dream, right? To be able to uh, have a good living for your family, to own your own house, to make a reasonable wage, those type of things. When the higher you sit on the top of this pyramid the easier it is to minimize the cry of those who say, I cannot breathe, I cannot breathe, I cannot breathe. Now, what happened early on in reference to Brian McLaren on that video that you watched, he mentioned how the Bible was often used to justify keeping people down. And one of the examples is found in Genesis chapter 9. It's a story right after the flood, and it's the story of Noah that after the waters receded and they emerged out of the ark, Noah got drunk, and he's laying in his tent buck naked. You can read this in Genesis chapter 9, and he has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And they see their dad passed out in the tent, and he's lying there naked. Two of the sons, Shem and Japheth, decide to take a blanket, and they back in to the tent so that they wouldn't look upon their father's nakedness, and they cover him. The other one, Ham, does not. When Noah wakes up, he says, Cursed be Ham. He will always be a servant of these other two brothers. Later in biblical interpretation, it was said that Ham is of the lineage of Canaan and of the race on uh, Africa's continent. And this particular passage of scripture was used to say that they are under a curse that the blacks from Africa are under a curse, therefore it is God's judgment on them to always be enslaved to other people. Now is that a long stretch of a really weird story? But nonetheless, that was one of the key cornerstones that was used to justify the enslavement of the black population. The other one is found in the New Testament. In the New Testament, actually in the same uh, little letter that we have been reading from out of the book of Ephesians, there's a household code in chapter 6 talking about wives being submissive to husbands and children obeying their parents. 
and slaves obeying their masters. The Bible never condemns slavery outright. What we find is there are modifications to slavery and certain things that are said about treating your slaves correctly and rightly, but it never comes right out and says slavery is an evil. But here we are, we, these many centuries later, recognize that all people are made in the image of God, and because they are made in the image of God, they are worthy of love, they are worthy of respect, they are worthy of dignity, and they should not be mistreated, let alone enslaved for profit. But here in Ephesians chapter 6, it says, Slaves, obey your masters as unto the Lord. And so early Christians in this country latched onto that and said, see, it says right here that slaves are to obey their masters as unto the Lord. The Bible gives us justification for owning other people. Now, of course, there were other Christians that was a part of the abolition movement that said, no, 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 we have matured, we have advanced, we have progressed beyond that, and we recognize that all human beings are worthy of love and worthy of respect and worthy of opportunity. And yet, the Bible was often used and twisted in a way to justify not only slavery, but the end of slavery which was to stay on top of the pyramid of power. That there are people that are on top that control those underneath. So I want to take this and I want to illustrate it for you in a different way. So I'm put some pictures to this. So here you have a young black man. He grew up in a poor community. He's raised by a single mom. He has worked minimum wage jobs. And there's these walls that he can't break through. And whites will say something to this effect, well, he should just better himself. This is the land of opportunity. Why doesn't he go to college? How's he going to do that? How is he going to afford that? Does he even have the educational ability to do that? So the only way out from this pyramid of power that traps him on the bottom row here is if he has some athletic ability. This is our own LeBron James, right? Northeast Ohio kid. And from the time he was in junior high school down in Akron, it was recognized that he had some abilities, right? That he was going to be a tremendous basketball player. So the wall kind of broke for him, and he was able to move up to the next tier because he was recruited by St. Vincent St. Mary High School. And it was there that he was able to get a good education in a private parochial school based upon his athletic ability. What we find is that he graduates from St. Vincent, St. Mary, and he's immediately drafted into the NBA. Never went to college. He played in the NBA for the Cleveland Cavaliers at the age of 
18. Can you imagine that? But see, that wall broke down because of his athletic ability, and he moved on up, and he was everything that they thought he would be and more. All pro. And he's about ready to break the all-time scoring record here in the next couple months of the entire history of the NBA. As he moved through these walls, there were opportunities and endorsements. Because after all, if you wear Nike tennis shoes and you can endorse Nike tennis shoes, all the young kids that are still trapped down here will want to buy those tennis shoes. Because it's a sense of self-esteem and self-worth. Here's a kid that broke through the walls, and now he's about ready to become a billionaire. Yet he's still kind of trapped in the pyramid of power. This individual up here is Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban owns the Dallas Mavericks. He's white, he's smart, and he's incredibly rich. And he's not only an owner of a basketball team, but because he doesn't have these walls around him, he can move into other ventures like Shark Tank. Okay? And if he wants to, this could go over here, he could write a book about his life and, and live off some of the proceeds of that as well. What people don't understand is that people that are down here just can't break through these walls without opportunities. They can't do it on their own. But the higher up we go, the tendency is for us to make sure that we keep the people below us in their place. So proposals like a $15 per hour minimum wage gets, huh, no way. We just want you to earn, what is the minimum wage now? Eight something? What is it? What is it now? Yeah, it depends on your state, right. You can't even live on minimum wage. There's no possible way you can live on minimum wage. So we want to make sure we keep people below us, right? Because that keeps affording us opportunities. So LeBron James would love to become an owner of a basketball team. Will he be given the chance? I don't know. He's black. Think of how long it took for blacks to even to get into coaching positions. That was always pushed down. So what I'm trying to tell you today is it's not just personal things like my own outlook on people of other races and cultures. It's a systemic thing as well, right? And the higher you go on this pyramid of power, the more opportunities and options you have. Think of a guy, if I put a picture of Elon Musk up on the top of the pyramid, the guy bought Twitter for whatever, $200 billion, ran it into the ground. After he lost all $200 billion, he's still the second richest person in the world. People don't have those type of options that are down lower on the pyramid. So when religion gets involved, 
and it becomes malicious to try to keep people in their place, then you will hear the cries of those that are below saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And we are to withhold our judgment because we're up here somewhere. I'm not up here. I'm not even here. I'm probably in here. But my tendency is to always look down in the next tier. So wherever you are, your tendency is to look down on the tier below you. And what is our temptation? To judge those people that they're not at the next tier level. So this pyramid of power is one that was used with the Bible for justification. It's systemic in many respects. And it tends for us to minimize the heartfelt cries of people who are the objects of racism and discrimination. So let's come back to Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. We introduced this last week. For he, Jesus, is our peace who has made two groups in Paul's day, that was Jew and Gentile. These two groups won and he has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create, create in himself one humanity out of the two, thus making peace. That's still the objective of Jesus. That's still his goal, is to break down the walls of division and to bring people together in peace. Now, in order to do that, we're going to have to learn a lot about other people. We have to learn about their life, where they came from, what they're doing, um, what their opportunities are, what their limitations are. But it doesn't help when religious becomes malicious. So I want to give to you a quote, and then I'll tell you who it's from. This is an actual quote. We understand the curse that was slavery white people do, but we miss the blessing of slavery, that it has actually built up the framework for the world that white people live in and lived in. Interesting quote. That particular quote came from a megachurch pastor by the name of Lou Giglio. Passion City Church down in Atlanta Atlanta is at the heart of MLK. I'm going to show you some pictures in a second. There's the MLK National Park down in Atlanta. If anyone should be sensitive, you would think people that are pastors in Atlanta would do that. This was a part of a televised discussion that Lou Giglio had with Chick-fil-A CEO Dan Candy, uh, Dan Cathy, and an African-American rapper Lecrae, which I'm not familiar with. Anybody familiar with Lecrae? He backpedals, Lou Giglio does, when there was an enormous about a pushback on that comment. The blessing of slavery. Blessing for whom? For whites. Right? Blessing for whites. So, Brent and I had the opportunity to go to Atlanta to watch the Browns lose to the Atlanta Falcons back in October. 
It was our yearly pilgrimage together to a different stadium to watch a game. And uh, when we were there, we visited the Martin Luther King Jr. National Park. It's right in the heart of Atlanta. And it sits right on the corner, uh, over here is the park, but sitting on the corner is Ebenezer Baptist Church. Does anybody know what Ebenezer Baptist Church is? That was the church of Dr. Martin Luther King. That's where he preached his many messages here. And at Ebenezer Baptist Church, there was the birth of the civil rights movement that made advances against racism, but it never completely reached his ultimate mantra. I think we all remember his great I have a dream speech, right? And this I have a dream speech had in it, we uh, let justice roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. So at the center of this park is this reflecting pool here that says we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. And it is there that hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people every year go through and they see different images like this. This image here is inside the building and reflects the Selma Bridge that was walked across. And you'll see it reflects whites and blacks, young and old, that realized our society has to become better. And in order to overcome racism, it takes people walking arm in arm across this bridge of privilege and power and prejudice. And so what we find is that Dr. Martin Luther King, tomorrow is a day that is in honor of him. And it, many of you will have maybe school uh, will be off. Maybe some of you have the day off from work. But these are all just kind of wonderful little things that give credit to that man's incredible life. But the real issue is not whether there's a national holiday or whether there's a Dr. Martin Luther King Boulevard in every city around the country. The real issue is, are we building bridges? Are we, are we building bridges? And are we walking across those, bringing down the dividing wall that can occur in the midst of our lives? So, Here's some of the things that have been said by uh, black pastors. The first one is from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. himself. He says, America has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. And it has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice and humanity. Isn't that the truth? Why can't these people just behave? Why they, can't they just stay in their place? Because it's upsetting me, images that invoke and evoke. Rather than being concerned and hearing their voice about what is really at the heart of the black experience. So Bishop William Barber says, we must have a third reconstruction. We must address the five interlocking injustices of systemic racism. Poverty ecological devastation and the denial of health care, the war economy, the false moral narrative of religious nationalism. 
So he talks about these things in a way that we find that we all have a part of doing what we can on a personal level and interacting with other people to try to work on a corporate level as well. And if we do, then I think one of the things that we see is great things can continue to be done even though at many times it works at a snail's pace. So the reason I called this series TKO, which means technical knockout, is it's a long fight. It's something that doesn't happen with one punch. It is something that needs attention each and every year. So when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day comes around again next year, are we any further down the road as a country, as a church, as individuals than we were the year before? Some of my greatest joys uh, was in relationship with a family, Reggie and Renee Bailey. They took a couple of classes that I was teaching at, and we built this bond. Reggie came down with cancer a number of years ago and passed away. Renee is still working in the inner city off 152nd Street, trying to minister to the black community in ways that I never could. But I think back on that relationship and others that I've had over the years And it made me different because I was up close and personal with people and could see things that I could not see by just watching a newsreel. Hearing the stories of people that can tell you what it's like to have a whole system wanting to keep pushing you down, pushing you down. So one thing that we at least can do is to pray for great things to be done in the ongoing years to come. And for us to step into those moments to make a difference where we can as individuals. So I'm going to have Corey come back up and we're going to sing and use this as a prayer today that God will continue to do great things. Would you stand?